This is Soccer City. The English Premier League, the most popular league of the world in any sport, has built an empire. And Wall Street Journal scribes Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson have co-authored a book detailing that journey. They'll be joining us in a moment. Departing from New York City FC last week, the two remaining originals from the expansion 2015 season, David Villa and Tommy McNamara. I'll have some thoughts on that. NYCFC Academy Player of the Year, Nico Benalcazar, has dreams of becoming a homegrown, just like James Sands and Joe Scally. I visited with Nico after an academy training session recently. That interview coming up. Gio Savadese, he's a New York soccer icon, and now he's getting it done in the Pacific Northwest. He's got his Portland Timbers in the MLS Championship match. That story as well. Well, I've got a new book for you to consider, and it's been released today, Tuesday, December the 4th. It's entitled The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. And today on Soccer City, I've got the co-authors with us uh, from the U.S. and New York City. Jonathan Clegg, uh, senior editor for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, He's contributed to the Daily Telegraph, the Independent, 442 Magazine, and Joshua Robinson, European sports correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. You've seen his bylines in the New York Times, Washington Post, and uh, Sports Illustrated. Gentlemen, welcome. It's a pleasure. Jonathan, uh, in the forward, uh, you say that the book is a tale about empire building, And I'm just curious, when did you and Joshua connect and decide on this topic? Did you have a light bulb moment, or or what was the impetus? Um, Yeah, thanks. Thanks. First of all, thanks very much for having us on the show. Um, You know, just to make it especially confusing, I am John. um, I live in New York, but have a British accent. Josh is American, but lives in London, so that's all very confusing. Um, (laughs) But... um, (laughs) But yeah, the book really came out of um, a, a sort of combined decade of covering the uh, Premier League for the Wall Street Journal. During that time, we saw you know a lot of the um, success that the Premier League had had and the kind of wild, um, remarkable growth that it experienced since 1992. As it reached its 25 years, uh, 25th anniversary, which happened last year, the sort of peacetime that, it, that had uh, existed in English soccer during that period was gradually starting to come to a close. You saw some of the sort of tensions and divisions that had been masked by the Premier League's success. Well, it, well Joshua, it, it, the amazing thing to me, reading through the uh, the beginnings and the research that you did, that uh, prior to all this, 92 teams in four divisions, to make sure I have this right, uh, four divisions of English football, they shared everything equally, the best down to the, the fourth division. So it, now you now it, you fast forward towards the end of the book and toward and what we've got currently, you've got the big six like Man City, Man U, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, Liverpool. They want a bigger piece of the pie than the uh, than the other 14. So it's there's a lot that's happened in between, but really an amazing story. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, you know, that everything that the 92 coach were sharing was not a lot to begin with. The league was under-marketed. It was a phase in the mid-'80s when English soccer, due to a dispute between the, the club owners and um, the TV broadcasters, wasn't actually on television for the better part of the season. There was no English soccer on television. Um, so this is how far we've come. Those clubs uh, at the sort of very top and that, that originally created the Premier League 
decided, hey, we're, we need to make some money at this. They looked at the NFL. They saw how it was marketed, how it was uh, tied up intrinsically with the TV broadcasters and realized that they had this product on their hands that they were completely underutilizing. Hey, John, I, I want to go back to the NFL and, and its influence in how the EPL was structured. There was even Monday Night Football. I think that might have been the first year of, of, of the television and maybe how Rupert Murdoch uh, became involved, the uh, Fox Network mogul who uh, certainly played a role in all this. The uh, Premier League lifted ideas from the NFL kind of almost wholesale. They just straight ripped out um, ideas. Not not so much, I mean, on the one hand, kind of broad ideas about, you know, um, as Josh mentioned, you know, marketing themselves as an entertainment and TV product and, and taking seriously the needs of broadcasters. Those, those sort of broad lessons they learned from the NFL. But they also, you know, these, these owners who sort of formed the original Premier League, they also kind of ripped out, you know, um, much more simple ideas, right down to the Monday Night Football format. Um, one of the owners, uh, the owner of Manchester United, Martin Edwards, came over and was blown away by watching um, the Raiders play in a, in a game against the Jets. Went back home two years later, Manchester United bought a black jersey that was modeled on what the Raiders were doing. So, you know, they, 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 they took every sort of single piece of what the NFL was doing and saw if they could sort of somehow translate that into, you know, British English and, and kind of market that in English soccer. Um, and yeah, Rupert Murdoch, again, was a sort of very important figure in the early days of the Premier League. And it's funny that the, the Premier League, English soccer was actually, we now think of Rupert Murdoch and the Fox NFL deal and, and all the kind of sports rights that his, um, his various TV networks and media companies have snapped up over the years. But the Premier League was really his first big, um, you know, gamble on, on sports rights. He, his, British TV network, um, now known as Sky. I mean, they actually, uh, News Corp recently sold Sky, but um, his his British TV network was failing, was losing um, at about a million pounds a week uh, in the early 1990s. And he was desperate for a way to turn this thing around. And he rolled the dice uh, on English soccer. Jonathan Clegg and uh, Joshua Robinson, uh, co-authors of the club, our guests here on uh, Soccer City. So I... Uh, Josh, I want to ask about what is it that made the EPL so attractive that it's that it's grown exponentially like this? Is there was there a seminal moment? What was it? That's a great question, and it it kind of happened so gradually that uh, you know, in the space of fifteen years, we turned around and suddenly the Premier League was the most popular sports league on the planet. Um, and there was there was a number of factors, and really, they all kind of came together in an uncannily perfect way. Um, the time, everyone got their timing exactly right. From the owners who realized, who jumped on new technology like cable television and things like that, um, to uh, you know, the arrival of, for instance, foreign players in England in the mid-90s who brought a whole different way of playing and raised the standard. They brought um, a lot of things like creativity, a new kind of creativity and style that meshed perfectly with the more physical side of English soccer and the passion that was already there. Um, and from there, you've also, and, and that's in part down to, to certain revolutionary managers, guys like Sir Alex Ferguson, guys like Arsene Wenger, who really lifted the game in England. A potential audience of 4.7 billion people, uh, you guys write. Really wild. I want to go back to uh, Wenger for a moment. 
I don't know if he was the first or maybe second foreigner to actually come into the premiership and, and, and manage a club. I just remember, I think there's a piece in there where you talk about how he, he did a, he, he was uh, involved in a charades game and he did a Midsummer Night's Dream, like a, some sort of uh, repartee where he was, you know, helping to win the charades game and the, and the Arsenal owner noticed this and said, boy, this guy's got an extra something too. I mean, is that, was that really part of the deal, how he was uh, brought into the premiership? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, he, um, he and David Dean, who was then the principal shareholder at Arsenal, had uh, crossed paths um, at a, um, a dinner party where uh, Arsene Wenger uh, impressed him by with his uh, version of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in charades, and um, it was it was um, that was the sort of genesis for how uh, Wenger would then end up um, some years later becoming Arsenal's manager. Dean would appoint him as Arsenal's manager. Um, which is, you know, when, when you look back now, it's crazy to think that at the time, um, Arsene Wenger was unknown in English football. Um, it was considered a huge gamble by Arsenal to appoint a Frenchman who had been managing in Japan uh, to English soccer at a time when uh, no foreign manager had yet won the uh, Premier League title. When he joined Arsenal, he was greeted by a huge headline on the front of the Evening Standard saying, Arsene who? No one had heard of this guy, and it was seen as a, a reckless move by Arsenal. But within just a couple of years, um, he had sort of proved that that would be that was uh, you know, he sort of proved himself to be one of the great managers in English soccer history, winning the double um, early on in his time at Arsenal. And you know he's now sort of on the Mount Rushmore of English uh, soccer managers, certainly as kind of revolutionary character in the Premier League history. When you look back at what he did for say, you know the way players conduct themselves off the field with um, his ideas about nutrition um, and, um, and training and sort of bringing um, a professionalism to English soccer that hadn't existed before. Um, really a guy who transformed um, transformed the Premier League. Uh, I, uh, John or, or Josh, let's, let's talk about uh, Alex Ferguson. Is it safe to say that Alex Ferguson and Manchester United, uh, how they became so dominant uh, and, and really from a merchandising standpoint, I, I recall being young and uh, Manchester United was uh, – to me, very prominent, especially you're buying the jerseys and the mugs and everything else. So how much of an impact did Sir Alex and Manchester United have in all this building of the empire? Well, that was, that was the genius of Manchester United, really, was realizing ahead of everyone else how important merchandising was going to be. And Man United in the 80s hired away this, this very forward-thinking guy who's the merchandising director at Tottenham Hotspur, and we say that's one of the most significant transfers uh, in the Premier League era. They hired him away, and he started building the empire uh, for United. And so that meant there was certainly enough cash coming into the club to support what, Man- uh, what Alex Ferguson wanted to do with the playing squad. Um, you know, you have to realize that this is at a time when the kit deal, you know, the, who manufactured the jersey, was being negotiated by the manager himself. And we're talking about maybe 5,000 pounds that would just go into a, a kitty for the players. This was not yet big business. Man United started to change that, signing larger sponsorship deals, getting a, a, a big deal for uh, putting a sponsor on the front of the jersey. And that really set the table for Ferguson. Of course, Ferguson himself was a genius. Um, he, he was unlike any other manager, and I don't think we'll see another one like him in terms of rebuilding his team over and over. Uh, there were probably four distinct eras of, uh, of Man United under Ferguson, each with a different core of players and each incredibly successful. Um, but without the, the financial support and without the, the sort of marketing acumen 
of Man United in the late 80s and early 90s, I'm not sure it would have been possible for him to see that kind of success. Yeah, and he brought in the youngsters, uh, Giggs, Skulls, and, and, and Beckham to uh, really put them in a good way. And, and John, I don't think we can leave the discussion of, uh, of, of this uh, about managers and players without talking about this uh, volatile couple, Roman Abramovich and Jose Mourinho for, for Chelsea. That certainly, that was something, I know the writers were very happy with all that. Uh, Mourinho coming in and being brash, and uh, he was uh, he was someone that was colorful, which had to be good for promoting the league. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, his, his um, arrival uh, really kind of helped the Premier League um, by adding a kind of third uh, dimension and a third contender to what had been sort of shaping into a, an annual two-horse race. Um, by the end of the uh, 1990s, Arsenal and Manchester United were, you know, pretty far ahead of every other club. But um, the arrival of Roman Abramovich and then shortly after him, uh, Jose Mourinho, um, catapulted Chelsea into the um, into that sort of rarefied era at the top of the Premier League too. And that, in turn, helped the Premier League's you know, popularity um, around the world because the third uh, team, a new challenger, uh, this sort of brash, very egocentric, arrogant, um, you know, take no, there's no real sort of respect for reputations in English soccer. Jose Mourinho just came in, conducted himself um, in, in the way he saw fit without any sort of regard for how things were supposed to be done in English soccer. Um, that really made the Premier League even more of a compelling product and also, you know, helped um, helped its, its uh, clubs perform better in Europe, which also helped, you know, the, drive the Premier League's popularity around the world. When and, people were tuning in, this was like right when the Champions League was becoming the kind of, you know, really compelling tournament that it's become today. And British clubs were suddenly, you know, going into Europe and, you know, hammering, you know, some of the top teams, um, some of the biggest names in world soccer, which was something that British clubs had not been, had not done for a long time. So the arrival of Jose Mourinho certainly uh, helped the Premier League become you know, more of a sort of compelling global product. And of course, in 2008, you had the first all-English Champions League final. Thanks to Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson. It's on sale today. The club, the English Premier League, the most watched sports league on the planet. 16-year-old Nico Benalcazar is the current captain of the New York City FC Academy U19s and recently named the Academy Player of the Year. I spent a few minutes with the Wilton, Connecticut native after a recent training session. Well, first, Nico, I want to say congratulations on a couple of fronts. First, uh, your award within the academy and your commitment to go to Wake Forest. That's that's a lot of good news in one year. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a long year, but we got it done. So when you hear Wake Forest and you hear New York City FC, Jack Harrison comes to mind. He was there for one season. and. Uh, obviously, the exploits of Harrison are, are well documented here with New York City FC. But have, have you ever communicated with Harrison about his experience? Yeah, we talked about it a lot when I used to train with the first team. We, I, I asked him about it multiple times before I committed, and then after I committed, he said it's like an amazing place, amazing like atmosphere, and he he said he recommended it to me highly. Yeah. Why did you ultimately choose Wake? It was just the best fit for me. So I went down to visit Duke, UNC, and Wake with my family, and we just all fell in love with it, and it just felt like a place I wanted to be. So you were looking at ACC country then? Yeah, yeah, I was. I, it's just the best competition for soccer, and that's what I love to do, so. Now on the academy side, uh, how long have you 
been in the academy uh, yourself? For NYCFC, I've been here, this is my fourth year, and then I played two years with Beachside. So your switch to a New York City FC also added a little uh, additional commute time to get to training. Now you, you come four times a week, so that's quite a commitment. So how do you manage that with your family? Um, so we have a carpool with like four of my other teammates, so it's not too bad on my parents, but they do have to drive me once every week. And I also got my license recently, so it helps a lot. So when it's my turn to drive, I could either drive or I can help them drive the carpool whenever they need. So your parents let you drive? Yeah. Yeah, they, they trust me enough, so. How did it come about that you joined the academy at New York City? Where were you seen? How did that all come about, the recruiting process? Yeah, so there were, like, uh, training programs with NYCFC with Rodrigo. He, like, held them when I was at Beachside. And it was, like, a they communicate, communicated with uh, Beachside. So there was, like, a few when I was 13. And on my, I, th I remember clearly the eighth training program, he asked me that, if I want to be a part of it, and then Mickey Cuddy's the head the head like director at Beachside, he asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. So I was like, of course. So ever since then, I've I've been here. Wow, that's so massive. Good. So uh, must be good uh, to know that uh, somebody watches you and and thinks highly of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it means a lot. What are the attributes, buttes, uh, and maybe Rodrigo told you specifically, but what are the attributes? you think you had then at that time that that uh, led you to New York City? Uh, he, he liked that I was very composed on the ball, I was very confident with it. So he said that he was looking for that as players. So. And how has your game uh, grown? What what are the aspects of your game that, that you can physically tell uh, mm -hmm. uh, have grown? Oh, my teammates joke around with me a lot. I used to be super slow, so I'm, I'm a lot, not a lot faster, but I've gotten faster. And also just like I used to play center mid at Beachside, and now I play defense, left back, right back, center back. So it's just learning different positions and just trying to help my teammates. I'm, I'm, I like to consider myself a good leader, so I help them out a lot. So super slow to what speed? Yeah. So where, if you go from super slow, where are you now? Uh, above <laughs> average, I'd say, yeah. Now, somebody would like to know maybe how do you actually increase your speed? Yep. Because super slow to a little above average yeah. or however you uh, slice it is it through a training program what, what did you do it was first just like growing but then also Jake we've the last two years we've had uh, plans I guess physically where we go in the gym and do certain certain things to improve ourselves physically so I think that definitely helped with like my body and just making me the best position I could be physically to be good on the field so let's, I'd like to go back to the of tactical course. side of yeah. it, which is uh, what Rodrigo maybe saw initially. And uh, you have an Ecuadorian background. I'm curious, was, is there something uh, in the culture of your background that, that led to a, a higher level of technique? Um, my dad used to play soccer when he was younger. He played professional in Ecuador. And then when he moved here, he had to stop to, to work. So he, everything he like says to do and I guess like all the like advice he gives me just motivates me to become a better player and I just play I play a lot at home so just my it's just all on me sort of so when you say at home is like uh, off the wall or what do you mean when you play a lot at home I just there's a field near my house so I, I go there and I have a few balls so just like there, there's like a I, f I live in a big lacrosse town so there's like bounce back like uh sure. like I'm not sure what they're called but yeah they're like bounce back things so I passed the ball off of that, and like I juggle with it, and it, it, yeah, it helps a lot. 
Because you're, I'm going to imagine that your dad, mm-hmm. um, I'm not, you, maybe you could tell us exactly where he played in Ecuador, but it's it's more of a, a street soccer culture. It's yeah. one of those where the technique is developed, you know, less in training and more just on your own. I've been to Ecuador four times and there's there's a field right ne- next to his house when he was younger and like the, ho- the house he lives th- lives at, there's like a wall. So ever since I was younger, he like, t- he taught me how to play there. So it, it was really nice. So you were part of uh, a national championship team this year uh, with the U19s. Can you uh, describe that experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, that last game was just phenomenal, yeah. but just the whole buildup and, and the like. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was a lot of hard work throughout the entire season. There's a lot of new guys coming in, and a lot of there was at first there were a lot of injuries, so we were down, and then at the end we were about 22 players, so there was like a lot more. But everyone like got the message that like we need to all work hard to win. So just like the entire season, everyone worked hard, and it really showed in the last game just how much we stuck together as a unit. Were you a candidate to take a penalty? I was two spots after James and James had the game winner so I happy and also yeah of course I was happy that he, he made it but if it had got, came to me hopefully I would have made it I'm not sure so it sounds like you were looking forward to the chance to do it as opposed to being like relieved when Sands made the kick it's sort of a mix of both of course you love winning so that's all you can ask for and your value to the team you talked about you play fullback on the right on the left, you can play central defense. So, do you feel like that versatility is, is a big uh, plus for you? Yeah, I think it helps me a lot because, like I said before, there was lots of injuries. So, whenever coach would need a position, he'd like put me there. But also, at the end of the season, James came down to play with us. So, I played left back, and it just helped because I I could lead from the left side. When if there were another player, they wouldn't be as vocal as I I would be. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned James, and he has signed a first-team contract. He was the first homegrown for New York City FC. Joe Scally has followed suit. Is it safe to say that's uh, on a list of your dreams? Yeah, my dreams, of course. I work hard every day to, in practice to hopefully get a chance at signing a contract soon, but we'll see what happens. Can you share some of your experiences? There were some big names along the way. I think Andrea yeah. Pirlo you were on the field with, uh, David Villa. Yeah. I don't know if Lampard was there, but uh, can you can you share some of those? Yeah, so our the first time we went, there was about six of us, and I was walking my teammate Velko, and we asked Pirlo to hit the crossbar. And it was pretty cold at the time, so he, he had a neck warmer on. He covered his eyes and hit it first try. <laughs> it was crazy. And then also this past summer I was training with them, they were taking free kicks after practice while I was practicing with James, and I saw David Villa. It hit like the utmost corner, and it went. In. It was just his technique is so like fun to watch. It's 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 amazing. So it's neat for you to watch them play and and then have that chance maybe someday to be part of that. What did it feel like when uh, James Sands got a chance this year? He did really well in his opportunities. Yeah, no, I was super excited for him. I texted him before he, and after he played like good luck and good job since he played super well. And it shows how well our coaches have like made us ready for the the pros, and he he really he didn't shy away from the challenge, so that was really nice to watch. And it was a motivation for every one of us here to just work hard and hopefully we can get there at some point. He's a U19 national championship at the age of 16. That's Nico Benalcazar, NYCFC Academy. 
The last two members of the NYCFC 2015 expansion side are now gone. First, it was David V announcing that he'll be departing New York City for Vissel Kobe. It's a top-flight team in the Japanese league, the J-League, reuniting with former Barcelona mate Andres Iniesta. Uh, tributes have been plentiful for the New York City captain. I'd like to tell one personal story that symbolized his investment in MLS, New York City, and the community. Now, in his first season, Villa did not conduct any interviews in English. Then in February of 2016, his second year, it's preseason, media conference call with Villa, I was the first in the queue of reporters and asked a question, expecting translator Nicole Chayette to intervene. Villa proceeded to listen and respond to the question in English, which was a really nice moment that Via thoroughly enjoyed as each reporter down the row, six or seven of them, offered their congratulations. More importantly, he was the captain, and now he could communicate in a more effective way with his whole team and the supporters. It was impressive. As for the other departed player from that expansion side, Tommy McNamara, who quickly became a bit of a cult figure, the long locks and the penchant for spectacular goals and was an integral member of the team with 14 goals, 14 assists over the first three seasons. But in 2018, under first Patrick Vieira and then Dolme Tehran, McNamara's numbers declined dramatically. Just 10 appearances, no goals, no assists. I wanted to play you a moment from an interview with Tommy Mack. It was from the spring of 2018. Vieira was still in charge. Tommy addressing the fact that he couldn't get on the field. The competition's better than it's ever been at this club and so that's uh, it's a good thing it's a healthy thing it's it's been healthy for the club it's been healthy for myself and I feel in a good moment I feel like I'm playing well and it's it's up to the coaching staff to make decisions no I feel better than I've ever felt to be quite honest in this league I feel like I'm playing better than I've ever played um you know I I, I Obviously, I've, I've hardly played this year, so it's difficult to see, but I personally feel in a better place than I've felt before. I mean, it's frustrating, of course. Everybody wants to be playing, and I, I desperately want to play as well. Um, but I'm just keeping my head down. I'm, I'm working hard. I'm training very well, and I'm waiting for opportunities. Well, those opportunities did not come this year, and Tommy Mack hoping for a new opportunity down the road. Gio Savadese, a legendary soccer figure in New York. Having moved to the United States in 1990, where he played for the Long Island University Brooklyn Blackbirds, eventually the league MVP of the USISL with the Long Island Rough Riders, the year before getting drafted by the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, now the Red Bulls, where he scored 41 goals in 85 appearances. As a coach, he has led the New York Cosmos to the NASL Finals, four times from a period 2013 through 17, winning the championship on three of those occasions. And this year, his first as a head coach in Major League Soccer, he has led the Portland Timbers to the MLS Cup, where they will meet the favorite Atlanta United Five Stripes on Saturday at 8 p.m. in Atlanta. Well, it had been a difficult start to his MLS coaching career. The Timbers were winless in their first five matches under Sabadese, all on the road. We spoke in late April after Portland had defeated New York City 3-0, the Timbers' second straight win after a tough start. But Sabadese still feeling the support. For me, the most important thing is that he has a, a soccer culture. And uh, it's a, a fantastic place to be able to coach uh, a team because everybody really cares about the club. 
and uh, for me, has been has uh, been has been very positive. And next, listen closely. Just seven matches into his MLS experience at the time. And you heard a familiar refrain from Savarese to his team, the same that we heard quite often when he was mentoring the Cosmos. Because what we have to believe is that we have a planet pitch game and that we want to have an identity, but we are building that identity. But the most important part is that we have to have a plan. You know, we want to be a team that entertains. We have to be a team that uh, enjoys having the ball, that, uh, that we're able to create, you know, good offensive plays as well as, you know, be able to be uh, solid defensively. We'll play game by game in the way we want it. And ultimately, we want to arrive uh, to to uh, an identity that, that sticks. Savaday say in the Timbers, they have arrived in the MLS Cup final. And given time to prepare for a match and his experience in championship matches, Who's voting against this Venezuelan national who made an indelible mark in New York soccer? And the first Cosmos title in 2013 played in Atlanta when the Cosmos defeated the Silverbacks. Well, that'll do it for Soccer City. I'm Glenn Crooks. Have a great week of soccer.